WVUA-FM, Tuscaloosa. Any opinions expressed in this program are those of the host and do not represent the thoughts or opinions of 90.7 WVUA or the University of Alabama. Welcome back to Pulse of the Nation. It has been so long and I have missed each and every single one of y'all. I am Brayden Vick. I am the host of the Pulse of the Nation podcast. Welcome to season three. And would be I would be remiss to not include everything that has happened since I last talked to y'all. So where we left off was the congressional news. So we're going to start off from there. When we left off, I believe we were at the speakership battle between Steve Scalise and Jim Jordan. We'll start off from there. So McCarthy's been vacated. You know, Matt Gates has gotten his revenge, yada, yada, yada. So yeah, the Scalise versus Jordan battle and Scalise had won that battle. He'd won that caucus vote. But what ended up happening was enough conservative Republicans balked at the idea of a Scully speakership, believing it wouldn't be conservative enough. And thus, Scully decided he was going to drop out without even facing a vote. So now you have another speakership battle. You have to go to your third choice. Jim Jordan runs again. He runs against some random backbencher nobody's ever heard of called Austin Scott. He's a representative Republican from South Georgia. And Jim Jordan, the representative from Ohio, he wins that election, that caucus election. But it's a lot closer than people expect. But Jim Jordan, he does get a few floor votes. He fails them. He fails his floor votes. And he decides, you know what, it's not worth it. I'm dropping. So now, obviously, it's not great. Your top three candidates for Speaker of the House have either failed speakership votes or, you know, (laughs) were going to fail speakership votes on a vote of the full House. So now you go to your fourth option. And their fourth option, after a bunch of hand-wringing, was Tom Emmer. He was a House Majority Whip Republican from Minnesota. He suffers the same fate as Steve Scalise. Enough people say, I don't want him to be the Speaker of the House. He drops out. So now who are you going to go for? Bunch of people decide to run. Like, it, everything is crazy. Business has stopped. Remember what I said last season, that the House cannot conduct any business until it has a Speaker of the House. And so you have to have another Speaker of the House. And so lots of people fight. There are a lot of you know, strong candidates on the Republican side. But who they end up going with was he's a guy in leadership, more the backbench of leadership, but he's a representative from Northwest Louisiana, from Shreveport. His name is Mike Johnson. And he was a guy that the Republicans decided, okay, we don't have enough disagreements with him that we would prevent him from getting the speakership. And so the House finally got a speaker. Mike Johnson is a Speaker of the House, and what he will be judged for his role as Speaker effectively. Now, before we get into some other news that involves another Louisiana representative or two, you know, Mike Johnson, one of the main concerns about him is that his fundraising wasn't good. Like, Kevin McCarthy, like, you can say what you want about him, and I certainly have said a lot of things about him, but he's a good fundraiser. He is a really good fundraiser. He's arguably one of the reasons why Republicans even took back the House in 2022 because, you know, he rides for his fellow California Republicans. Young Kim, you know, Michelle Steele, David Valadale, John Duarte, you know, just being a few examples, you know, in competitive districts where either they flip, you know, blue districts or they hold competitive ones. And thus you have... A situation in which, you know, for all of Kevin McCarthy's faults, he was able to help win the Republican Party competitive races in competitive House districts. Right now, Mike Johnson has gotten nowhere close to the fundraising prowess Kevin McCarthy has and probably never will. And that's completely understandable. Kevin McCarthy is one of the strongest fundraisers on either side of the aisle. But... With Mike Johnson not being able to pull in nearly as much money as Kevin McCarthy has, it uh, 
it's not exactly great news for a Republican Party that is already cash-strapped, and we will get to that at the end of this episode. But we'll stick with Louisiana for now. And remember when I was talking about Steve Scalise? You know, he was a second choice for speaker, and then enough people were belled, so he dropped out. Well, he is sort of at the center of a congressional redraw in Louisiana because while we were gone, Louisiana courts ruled that their congressional map was a racial gerrymander where black voters were not able to elect the necessary number of candidates of their choice. There weren't enough black opportunity districts, so to speak. It's the same thing that happened with Alabama, whose map is confirmed to be on for 2024. There will be a second black opportunity district stretching from Montgomery to Mobile. But on to Louisiana now, you have now two black opportunity districts. And the two questions here is like, okay, was Louisiana going to go the Alabama route or were they going to go the a different route? And they decided not to go the Alabama route. They decided not to fight it in federal court. They decided, okay, we're just going to get this over with. We're going to draw a second black opportunity district. We have a state senator who a lot of us are friendly with and state senator Cleo Fields from Baton Rouge. You know, if you're speaking on, you know, the perspective of a Louisiana State House or State Senate Republican, like you have a good relationship with Cleo Fields. You won't mind him, you know, getting back to the congressional seat he held a few decades ago. And so they drew a district that stretches from Shreveport all the way to Baton Rouge. And can I say a couple of things? First off, that is very similar to a congressional district that was struck down in the mid-1990s in Louisiana State Court. That district stretched from Shreveport all the way to, like, West Baton Rouge. That, you know, if you're a Democrat, that gives you pause. You know, it's like, okay, Louisiana had rejected this sort of congressional map before. It... You know, you have a lawsuit that's trying to throw out this map, you know, that's going through the state court system right now. And, you know, you don't know, like if you're a Democrat, you're thinking, okay, Republicans did draw a black opportunity district, but were they trying to get it thrown out is the thing. But the other thing I want to mention is how how they drew the other districts, which I think is and very underrated story. So why did I mention Steve Scalise's name? Well, it unfortunately it has to do with, you know, the fact that he has blood cancer. And and you know, wish him well, you know, we're all praying for him to recover from, you know, from the, the cancer and the treatment and whatnot. But Someone was spreading rumors that Steve Scalise did not have long left, and that someone was Representative Garrett Graves, who represents some of the arch-conservative Baton Rouge suburbs. That certainly did not fly well with Louisiana Republicans. The other thing to know with Garrett Graves is that he endorsed Governor Jeff Landry's Republican opponent in the Louisiana gubernatorial jungle primary. He endorsed a different Republican, Scott Wagespack. Wagespack obviously flopped. You know, Jeff Landry got a majority and, you know, ends up being governor. So now Jeff Landry has two reasons to punish Garrett Graves. You know, you endorsed another Republican candidate against Governor Landry. And now, you know, people were saying, oh, you're spreading salacious rumors about what Steve Scalise is going through. So Louisiana Republicans, they are ticked off and they're going to draw you out. And that is pretty much what happened. They combined the homes of Garrett Graves and Representative Julia Letlow from the Monroe area in Northeast Louisiana, combined them into one district, drew it to where Julia Letlow has more of her home base than Garrett Graves does. And, you know, Julia Letlow, I mean, now she is there because, and this is another thing about Louisiana politics that's fascinating, is that oftentimes when a politician dies, their wives come in and come in and replace them, and they get a huge sympathy bonus in the vote. And that's pretty much what happened. Julia Letlow's husband, whose name unfortunately I cannot remember, he was elected to the seat and unfortunately passed away due to COVID just you know a few short weeks after. Julia Letlow ends up running in the election, you know, and she just goes she goes gangbuster. She cleans up. I'm pretty sure she won every parish in that, you know, special election against a Democrat, you know, and, you know, she is in the House. She is 
proven to be an electorally strong representative. You know, I think that she definitely does have a future in, you know, not just Louisiana state politics. She could be a she could be a US senator fairly comfortably, I think, once, you know, once either of the two Republican senators, you know, end up resigning, whether that be you know, John Kennedy, whether it be the another one whose name I also cannot remember for cannot remember for the love of God, but it will probably come to me at a later time in the podcast. Which, if that's reminding you of every anything, next it'll be next week. I understand this is coming out a couple of days after everything that went on with Biden's documents and the whole memory thing, and then the press conference that happened just less than an hour before recording. I'll give all my thoughts on all that next week. So, you know, stay tuned. I have a lot of thoughts on that. You will not want to miss it. What you also won't want to miss is what's been going on at the border. Because usually, you know, usually when you talk about the border, you talk about, okay, Republicans say the border is broken. You know, we need to build a wall and just shut down the border, all this good stuff and, uh, what was interesting to me is what happened at Eagle Pass over the past month. So Governor Greg Abbott, the Republican from Texas, has an Operation Lone Star where he's sending, you know, Texas state troops, you know, Texas National Guard, you know, Texas Military Department and others to go to the border and, you know, in their eyes, secure it themselves. And part of what they did was they seized control of Shelby Park. That is about a 40-acre, I believe, city park you know, in Eagle Pass, Texas. It was home to a lot of festivals. It was a public park, but it was seized by the uh, Texas National Guard and TN, TNG, TMD, and they've effectively stilled it off to most of the public. And they've been using that as sort of a staging ground for some of their operations. Now, the federal government and Border Patrol end up getting into a situation where you have three migrants who or drowning in the Rio Grande. And the and Border Patrol says, like, we need to get to them, but the Texas National Guard denies them access, essentially, as far as what DHS is saying. And DHS, and those three migrants, unfortunately, died. You know, may God rest their souls. And DHS essentially blamed Texas for the deaths of those migrants. And that's where the real story sort of started. So you had this letter. Here's the crux of the story that really broke a couple of weeks ago. So you had a letter by Governor Greg Abbott after a Supreme Court ruling that, you know, essentially, you know, kind of slapped down Governor Greg Abbott, you know, in sort of the border policy in that the federal government was allowed to cut wire, you know, at Shelby Park and around the area. You know, they were like, it didn't stop Texas from putting up the wire, but it just allowed the federal government to cut it down. Essentially, that concertina wire that gets put up a lot at the border to try and prevent migrants from coming into the United States. So you have this ruling and Governor Abbott responds to it, essentially saying that, oh, this, my, this migrant crisis this is an invasion and that, you know, we are going to defend our borders. We're going to use the Constitution. You know, if the federal government isn't going to protect these borders, we're going to protect these borders ourselves. We're going to take responsibility for our own security. Yeah. And just sort of rah-rah thing to sort of rile up the base and say, well, I'm not backing down, you know, going to do what I think is right for Texas voters if you're from the perspective of Governor Abbott. If you're from the perspective of a lot of Democrats, you were thinking, did he just say that he was going to basically try to do a Fort Sumter? Because what they viewed that as was defying a court order which yeah <laughs> i mean democrats were accusing governor rabbit of essentially trying to create a nullification crisis if you're if you know anything about history you know 1830 nullification crisis in south carolina is about terrorists you know with john calhoun and all the major players of the time you know that is now seen as one of the main events that would ultimately lead to the Civil War three decades later. You know, so, you know, 
you have that nullification crisis. Or was it in 1850? I, again, again, sometimes dates get mixed up, but, you know, the crux of it is, again, yeah, the nullification crisis that leads to the Civil War. So Democrats were getting flashbacks, you know, and some Texas Democrats, you had Julian, I think it was Julian Castro, I think Joaquin Castro did his Joaquin was it? Yeah, Joaquin Castro, Greg Kassar, and Beta Work in particular called on President Biden to federalize the Texas National Guard. And that would be a significant escalation. Let's just talk about, you know, the his, some of the history of federalizing the federalizing a state national guard. 1957, you know, Little Rock Nine, you know, Arkansas Governor Orville Faubus essentially uses the Arkansas National Guard to try and block the Little Rock Nine from integrating Central High School. So President Eisenhower, you know, he sees this and, you know, essentially the federal government just was not going to allow that to happen. And Essential, especially with the Brown v. Board of Education decision that came, you know, like a couple of years before that, you know, the federal government saw that the governor of Arkansas was openly defying Supreme Court order and using a state national guard to, in order to enforce that defiance. So what they did is use the was use you know your laws, use the Insurrection Act, and federalize the state national guard. And what that does is that puts them under direct control of the federal government. They take orders from the commander-in-chief and his affiliates, not from the governor. And so you now have a situation in which the National Guard in 1957, instead of blocking the Little Rock Nine from going to the school, is now escorting them into the school. And... If you know anything about the history of, you know, the fight for, you know, school integration, racial integration in the southern United States, it was a long, arduous and quite frankly, bloody process. And the fact that, you know, you have some, some Democrats saying that Abbott's defying a Supreme Court order, federalize the Texas National Guard. I'm not sure what would happen after that, because there are a lot of ways where that could go very wrong. You know, you federalize the Texas National Guard. What if Guard members just refuse to take the president's orders? What if they still side with Abbott? Do you send in the military to sort of enforce it? Which, this would be if they defied the Supreme Court order. Abbott didn't defy anything. I mean, he was just signaling that he was willing to defy a court order that would order Texas to uh, not put up any more wire. But technically speaking, if you read the case, if you read the decision... Like, Abbott wasn't really defying anything. It was just sort of red meat for the base, in my opinion. So you have that situation, you know, that was developing. It is sort of on hold, like, what with the border talks that are still that are still developing. That will be, you know, another one of the major topics I will discuss next week is what's been going on with Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan, and you know, with the border and all the political finagling that's been going around because of that. And, you know, just sort of what I believe has been one of the most, some of the most embarrassing, I mean, embarrassing days to be a House Republican, you know, in this Congress. And good Lord, there have been a lot of embarrassing days to be a House Republican. Not, you know, I would be remiss you know, if I didn't mention, you know, the whole kicking your speaker out of the House because Matt Gates didn't like that he was referred to the House Ethics Committee for, you know, you know, unsightly accusations, let's just say. I'm not going to get into any detail on what Gates may or may not have done, but they're pretty heinous. You can look at them yourself. But, uh... Yeah, now, now that we do know since then that that was fueled by personal animus from Matt Gates towards Kevin McCarthy, you know, obviously embarrassing, you know, not being able to impeach Alejandro Mayorkas because you couldn't count votes and didn't know that Representative Al Green was going to go right from intestinal surgery to vote against it, the Democrat from Texas. Not great. Failing a rules vote on Israel because you didn't get the two-thirds majority because a majority of Democrats think that you were selling out Ukraine. 
Also not a good look for Mike Johnson, but I'll get more into that next week. Speaking of the uh, speaking of Congress, I'll get into after we discuss the primaries because there has been a lot of news regarding the primaries, things that essentially have confirmed what I've thought about the primaries for a while and what I've been saying since I think season one that this primary was never a real contest in the first place, that it was always going to be Joe Biden versus Donald Trump. You know, once we get after that, I'll talk about a lot of the congressional retirements that we have been seeing and what that could mean in regards to what the means for the future, what it says about the state of the House right now, especially in regards to the House Republicans. So, primaries. Since we left, there have been a few primary nominating contests. So let's talk about them, even though they, again, only confirm what I've been saying for a while. So Iowa, Donald Trump wins by 30 points. You know, <laughs> not exactly great for any of the other candidates, Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley. I mean, when Trump and Vivek Ramaswamy are getting a majority of the caucus vote in all but four counties... You know, besides Dallas County, which is a, you know, toss-up suburban county west of Des Moines, the other three are, are crucial Democratic counties, part of the uh, core Democratic base. You know, you had, you know, Story, which is where Ames is. That's the University of uh, Iowa State University. Apologies. You have Des Moines, which is the urban, the major urban center of the state. You have in Polk County and Johnson County. That's where Iowa City is. That's where the University of Iowa is. Hawkeye country, and it was also the only county to vote for Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley winning Johnson County by one single vote. People, never let anybody say that your vote doesn't count. Because we saw it in Alabama in 2018. Walt Maddox won this county, Tuscaloosa County, the one I'm recording from, by one vote in 2018 against Governor Kay Ivey. And now we see another instance of a county being won by one single vote just to deny Donald Trump the sweep of all of Iowa's 99 counties, he only won 98. In fact, saying he only won 98 counties just proves how absolutely dominant that win was for you know, Donald Trump. Ron DeSantis did you know better in rural areas than Nikki Haley did. That's why Ron DeSantis ended up getting second place. But uh, Ron DeSantis... That is where I'm going to focus on again, because if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know that I do not think highly of Ron DeSantis as a political actor when it comes to running for president. I think he is one of the most uncharismatic, awkward, and sometimes downright boring candidates that we have seen in a long long time enough thought for a while he has been one of the most spectacular flops that we have seen in the 21st century when it comes to people you know but major candidates like remember Ron DeSantis was beating Trump in one-on-one -on -one polls immediately after the 2022 midterms like remember that people were saying that Ron DeSantis was going to be an extremely viable candidate that could win states, that could pick off a lot of delegates, potentially make it a contested convention at the very least. You had people, you had journalists saying that Trump might not win a single nominating contest because he was perceived to be responsible for the Republicans blowing winnable election after winnable election in Arizona, Wisconsin, Nevada, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Georgia. You know, the critical swing states, you know, of, of the election, you know, including the five states that Joe Biden flipped from Donald Trump to win the election in 2020. And like, there, there was a time when people thought, like legitimately thought, Ron DeSantis would be the Republican nominee in, in 2024. Now, here we are in February of 2024, and does anybody even remember that guy exists anymore? Like, <laughs> I can't even pretend not to laugh at the utter car crash that was his presidential campaign. Like, like... 
I knew it. From the moment you announced your presidential campaign on Twitter, now X, now I don't know what it's called anymore. All I know is that when you announce your campaign on a Twitter space and the Twitter space is glitchy and has technical difficulties, you were kind of doomed from there. And Ron DeSantis knew it. You know, he was thinking about staying in the fight until at least New Hampshire, seeing where he goes. But he saw the poll numbers we all saw. Ron DeSantis wasn't getting 10% of the vote in New Hampshire. He, he wasn't winning a single delegate. So he saw the writing on the wall and did what any sensible person would do. And that was drop out of the race, which I can't blame him for that. Like, you know, it is something of a strategy that Nikki Haley has used, and we'll talk about this later, to where just trying to stay in this contest until a convention just in case, you know, something happens to Donald Trump, whether he is convicted or whether he is incapacitated in a way that prevents him from running for president, i.e. dying, then you could maybe say, okay, I'm here. I won delegates. You know, I've been competitive. You know, why don't you nominate me? But, I mean, at the end of the day, like after the Iowa thing, you know, no mainstream media journalist took your campaign seriously. Like if I'm, if I'm speaking to DeSantis as a candidate, like no one took the candidacy seriously. Like, like, a lot of outside observers, myself included, never took that candidacy seriously, especially after the tour space. And again, there were a lot, a lot of mishaps and mistakes and just downright idiocy that occurred in the DeSantis campaign. Remember, y'all remember back when his staffers, the social media staffers, shared that, you know, that Groiper Southern Rod video where you had the Southern Rod you know, just spinning around the seal of the state of Florida. Like, remember that? Remember? <laughs> like, if y'all are terminally online as I am, then I think y'all will remember that. But if you don't look it up, like, it is emblematic of what happens when a campaign is too online for its own good. And that's what Ron DeSantis is. He looks good to the online crowd. But put him in front of a group of actual people, put him in a group of like 50, 30, 50 people, and he just freezes up. Like, he just goes cold. Like, he is Kwame Brown in the clutch. Like, absolute zero. Like, I think Stephen A. Smith would concur with that. You know, everything that he said about Kwame Brown, I can say about Ron DeSantis. Like, oh dear God. That was one of the most, like, and I will repeat this because I think it bears repeating. That was one of the most heinously disastrous presidential campaigns of modern American politics. Unbelievable incompetence and hubris from top to bottom. You spent over, you spent hundreds of millions of dollars to get 20% in Iowa. That is what Ron DeSantis will be known for. Mr. 20% in Iowa. And you have people in DeSantis will saying, oh, he's pivoting to 2028. He's damaged goods now. Like, I understand it. Like, he's stuck in an impossible position. Like, if he waited until 2028, he probably would have passed up a, an opportunity you know, a successful opportunity in 2024 because he wouldn't have the same luster as he had in early 2023, late 2022. Like, he would be out of office potentially for a couple of years. It's, you know, he can't run for re-election again, you know, in 2026, I don't think. So, I mean, it's not like, you know... Ron DeSantis will be in, you know, the all the national news cycles. You know, he wouldn't be, and so like he knew, like, like knew he knew at the end of it that if he didn't run in twenty twenty four, he was probably going to be damaged goods in twenty twenty eight anyways. So I understand why he ran for in twenty twenty four, 
What I don't get are two things. One, why did he announce it so late? Because remember for a while, he was, there was a lot of like internal squabbling. Like, should he announce? Shouldn't he announce? You know, when do you announce? When don't you? And ultimately, like, I think you missed the moment. You know, I think, you know, when Trump is in a state of weakness that he hasn't been in, I think at any point in the Republican primary or the party save for January 6th, I mean, that's an opportunity, like, as a politician who wants, who is ambitious, you have to take it. And I don't, and DeSantis just didn't take it. But the second part is, again, I honestly don't blame DeSantis for this at all because he was stuck in a rock in a hard place. What was he on the campaign trail? Did he want to be Trump white? Did he want to be a more electable version of Donald Trump? Like, like he couldn't find his niche. And especially when you are as socially awkward as Ron DeSantis is, as I can attest to myself as someone who is socially awkward, like if you can't find your niche early, if you can't define yourself early, then outside forces are going to define you. You know, Meatball Ron, Ron DeSanctimonious, were some of the nicknames, you know, used by not just Trump, but liberals as well. You know, who were just mocking the Ron DeSantis campaign for perceived incompetences as I'm describing. And, you know, just this is just me saying that there are missteps from start to finish. And I legitimately have no idea where Ron DeSantis goes as far as national political ambitions. Maybe he wants to be a fourth senator. Maybe he runs for Senate in 2026. I don't know. But it's it just simply was not a good campaign in the loosest of senses and this campaign if it isn't about donald trump it is about the spectacular rise and astronomical fall of ron DeSantis as a national figure so then you move on to new hampshire and this is where the democrats finally start to get involved so now you have a primary that Quite frankly, on the Democratic side, because let's get over this first, it does not count. The New Hampshire primary as of right now does not count because it violated DNC bylaws by being first in the nation. The DNC calendar had New Hampshire's primary somewhere at the back of the line because it's not exactly a diverse state. It's like over 90% white or something like that. And also, Joe Biden wanted to reward the you know, the people who helped get him the Democratic nomination in the first place, i.e. Jim Clyburn, the representative from South Carolina. And so South Carolina is first on the official DNC calendar. New Hampshire prides itself of being in the first nation primary. So they threw a hissy fit, a massive hissy fit, and decided, you know what, we're going to run the primary anyways. We don't care what the DNC thinks. And DNC's like, okay, well, this primary is just not going to count for any delegates. And also, Joe Biden is, you know, banned, like, from running in this primary because, because, again, it's not sanctioned by the DNC. So, you have this weird situation in New Hampshire where Joe Biden was down on the ballot, but a ton of other candidates were, including Marion Williamson and Dean Phillips. You have this really late, really weak ceasefire now campaign, which, you know, looked to campaign for an end to the war in Gaza. And that ends up, you know, underperforming Donald Trump as a write-in in the Democratic primary. Jesus Christ. Anyways, what happened as far as that went? Well, Joe Biden won all but like one town and he won over well over 60% of the vote. Dean Phillips got about 20%. I mean, it was, a, I mean, to get beat by 40 points by a write-in candidate. I don't care if he's the president. But this is a president who has base turnout problems. He has base enthusiasm problems. With New Hampshire being, you know, one of the states where you expect higher turnout. The fact that six in ten Democrats who voted in that primary decided it was worth their time to go in and write in Joe Biden's name. I mean... I think that speaks to the unseriousness of the Democratic candidates on the ballot. And 
and I'll go to South Carolina in a moment to speak my piece further on that. But, like, again, Dean Phillips and Marion Williamson are just not serious candidates, and they never were. But let's focus on the Republican primary, because this was a primary where people thought, you know, it's higher college educated. A lot of, you know, more center-leaning Democrats might decide to cross over and vote for Nikki Haley. You know, same thing with independents who don't like Trump. And, you know, or they either like Haley or want to send a message to Donald Trump. They want to cross over into the Republican Party itself. And so, you know, a situation where people thought, you know, Nikki Haley might actually be competitive. And then some of the polls came in, saw Trump was winning by a landslide, and like, okay, yeah, no, this is not happening. But Nikki Haley did overperform the polls. Too bad she still lost by 11 points in New Hampshire where there are probably a not insignificant amount of liberals who voted in that Republican primary for Haley to stop Trump. And that, if nothing else, not only did it say, okay, Nikki Haley's not going to win a single contest and she's probably going to, outside of maybe D.C., I think she still has a shot at winning D.C., but... Outside of that, you've got no chance anywhere else. I mean, for the love of God, she just lost the Virgin Islands caucuses like 74 to 26%. Like, that's how bad it's gotten for the Nikki Haley campaign. We'll go on to Nevada later, but to see the best chance Nikki Haley had to not to win, and Donald Trump still won that state convincingly in the Republican primary. Like, yeah, that means, yeah, Trump has got the nomination on lock unless he dies. The other thing that this showed me was that New Hampshire is not exactly going to be competitive. And if it is, Joe Biden lost the election a long time ago. Like, you see a lot of these towns. Remember, 43%, I think it was like 43, 44% of that vote went for Nikki Haley. Or something along those lines. How many of those people are going to vote for Joe Biden over Donald Trump in the general election? Because the towns where Nikki Haley tended to do better in were not only more Democratic towns, but also towns with higher college education rates, like you saw on the seacoast. Like, even in the towns you're not winning, these narrow Trump towns, like, you're still getting 40, 45, 47, 48% in some instances. And you're like, these are the areas where, where now you are in a situation where it's like, okay, these people do not want Trump as a nominee. If you consult the Des Moines Register poll that Ann Seltzer runs in Iowa, as far as the Nikki Haley voters, which comprise 19% of that caucus electorate, when she asked Nikki Haley voters who they were going to vote for if it was between Biden and Trump, 20% picked Trump, 43% picked Biden. How high is that number in New Hampshire? Because if that is anywhere close to the Iowa numbers, then it just speaks to the sort of persuasion that Democrats have gotten against the the the, the MAGA GOP over the uh over the past couple of years, you know, in 2022, after the Dobbs decision came out, and pretty much onwards until until now, you know, as of the time this episode is coming out, we're going to be like three days until a special election in a competitive congressional district, New York's third congressional district. You know, the former representative Tom Suozzi, the Democrat, running against a Nassau County legislature slater by the name of Mossy Billup, the Republican, and that race as well as what I've talked about earlier in season two of the special elections and whatnot, and what they as an average can pretend to in terms of the national environment, that will, those elections will be very illuminating. And sort of seeing this persuasion effect continue or is it stopping? And if so, why? And right now, you can't tell me that like a significant chunk of those Nikki Haleyers are not going to cross over and vote for Biden. They are. They're going to cross over. And, you know, 
you know, you can call New Hampshire pretty early. I mean, you could, like, what with the how towns really supposed because some towns close an hour, hour earlier than others. Like, you have a lot of these, like, really narrow Trump one towns. And you're starting from a seven-point gap around that if you're a Republican. Like, if you're losing a lot of those narrow Trump one towns, particularly on the seacoast, like, a lot of those towns are, like, shifting left, but... You know, they're still leading Republican. Like, if Biden's winning any of those or a good chunk of those or anything like that, like, you can call Nevada almost immediately after those polls close. And I know it sounds taboo because I know recently New Hampshire's been thought of as a competitive state. And it still is on the state level, don't get me wrong. But as far as the presidential level, like, I would not be surprised whatsoever if Joe Biden won New Hampshire by double digits. In fact, I'm expecting it. And that primary was the main indicator for me as like, okay, Donald Trump has a massive, massive problem with center-right Republicans in New Hampshire. And there's nothing that indicates that he's going to be able to win a significant chunk of them. And like, and if he's not able to, he is cooked in that state. Absolutely cooked. Speaking of being cooked, Nikki Haley. Oh Lord. <laughs> oh Lord, Nikki Haley. Look, I get that Nevada was weird. You had a state-sanctioned primary and a party-sanctioned caucus that is happening literally as I speak, and. As of right now, we don't know the results of the state caucuses, but we will once this episode comes out and Donald Trump's going to win them with well over 90% of the vote. The, it's not surprising. Like The only other actual candidate he's running against is Ryan Binkley, some random megachurch pastor from the Dallas-Fort Worth metro. And yeah, let's talk about this primary, the state-sanctioned primary. This primary didn't count for any delegates. Nikki Haley was, I think, like one of like the only active candidates on that ballot. The only major candidate on the ballot. Like, the candidate, not the option, the candidate who got the second most votes in that primary was Mike Pence. Mike Pence. Tim Scott finished third. Do you want to know what percent of the vote Nikki Haley got? She got about 30%. 30%. You lost to none of these candidates by 32 points. Do you realize how absolutely done you have to be in a party where a majority of the vote is going to none of these candidates? Seriously, y'all. What was Nikki Haley doing in Nevada? Like, I know they wrote it off, but, like, Trump was running in the other primary. Like, clearly, the clearly the Republican base does not want Nikki Haley to be the nominee. They want Trump to be the nominee, and they expressed that through protest voting in a primary which, again, did not matter for delegate counting. It didn't matter. And Haley still lost about 32 points. Like, I was expecting that to be competitive. I was not expecting an absolute landslide. If y'all watch Nevada politics, y'all remember Governor Brian Sandoval, the very popular moderate Republican. In 2014, there was a Democratic primary. There was a lot of candidates. And none of them ended up getting above 30%. And neither did none of these candidates. But none of these candidates got the most votes. And, you know, the candidate that ended up winning that, that uh, primary, they ended up getting nominated, I think lost the scene of all the well over 40 points or something crazy like that. Like, that was absolutely insane. So you got to understand the levels of just, you're done. You have to be to even lose to none of these candidates, let alone by over 30 points. Over 30 points. How? Just how? 
I mean, and another thing, this also confirms, you know, Washu, you know, where Reno and Sparks are. It's going to trend left again because that's where Nikki Haley did the best in those areas. You know, college educated Republicans who really, 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 really do not like Donald Trump. And most of them would rather vote for Joe Biden than vote for Trump. They hate Trump so much you're willing to pull a lever from Biden. Like, that's an area you got to watch. And proves again Donald Trump's weakness in those areas. But let's move on to the Democratic primary. We're going to go a bit out of order. We're going to stay in Nevada. And Joe Biden gets 90% of the vote, pretty much. His main protest vote is in, you know, rural, you know, wider, more non-college educated electorates, more moderate to conservative electorates. Some of those Democrats were already voting for Republicans anyways. Like, the areas where Biden has had trouble... As far as relative to the state's lean, and like we're talking about like the worst case scenario if you're in New Hampshire is like Biden by 40 in the primary as a writing candidate, mind you. You know, you have rural Nevada, which casts like precisely like 10 votes probably. Southwestern New Hampshire, which is again, wider, more moderate, low college educated, didn't swing to Joe Biden all that much in 2020 and northwest south carolina which is again a wider lower college educated like if we pivot to south carolina for a moment where joe biden i think at like 96 percent of the vote which these are margins you usually only see in dictatorships and joe biden has eclipsed some of those margins in south in the south carolina democratic primary granted these are low turnout primaries we can't gauge everything off of just one primary, especially in an uncompetitive one such as what we're seeing in 2024. But if you're looking for protest votes, you might have to watch Michigan. Like Dearborn, you know, Hamtramck, areas with high Arab American, Muslim American populations, they're going to probably vote a lot for uncommitted because they're angry about Biden's policies for regards to Israel, Gaza, Palestine, and whatnot. But... Besides those areas, and those areas haven't voted yet, the front that and think the in-person early voting is like the early voting is like starting a little bit, I think, or you know, the primaries haven't concluded in Michigan. But outside of there, where have we seen protest voting really? Like I can't really find you anywhere. Like again, Biden's problems, like the areas where he's gotten the least amount of votes are wider areas. More lower college educated areas, areas which haven't swung as much to the left for Joe Biden, or even have swung to the right in some areas. Which proves a couple things. One, like primaries, uncompetitive primaries, their main purpose is to sort of say, okay, in which areas are the major party nominees struggling with? In Donald Trump's case, it's a continuation of 2020 college-educated suburban voters. In Joe Biden's case, it's non-college-educated rural voters, particularly non-college-educated rural white voters. Because you saw in South Carolina, the his best counties were usually the blackest. Like, areas like Williamsburg and... Berg and, like, I think, like, Culleton, Jasper, you know, Abbeville and areas like that. Or, like, some of the other counties. Counties, like, they were given, like, 97... 96, 98%. Like, it's just, it was surreal. And so, if there's any problem with Biden, it's probably enthusiasm. Because not a lot of people are enthusiastic about voting for Biden. But that doesn't mean they're going to pull the lever for another candidate, especially people that are as unserious as Marianne Williamson and Dean Phillips. If you want to talk about how unserious the Marion Williamson campaign was, the only reason they stayed in the race till Nevada, that campaign stayed in the race till Nevada, was just to spite some random Twitter, anonymous Twitter account called Organizer Memes, who had infiltrated a post-New Hampshire meeting where Marion Williamson was pretty much openly saying she was going to drop out. And you had a whole online storm afterwards to where... Essentially, what happened was, you know, organizer memes this account. This, you know, it's a de- it's a Democratic account. Works in Democratic politics. We don't know their identity. You know, they infiltrate. They sort of infiltrate this meeting, 
you know, they start joining and sort of live tweet it. Marianne's people are not happy when the live tweet of her announcement gets dropped. And the ensuing Twitter storm that follows, ensuing storm of just wild developments that goes on, eventually Marianne's staff pretty much convinces her to stay in the race because of this moment. But in Nevada, Marianne Williamson, you know, falls behind none of these candidates. You lost none of these candidates, Marianne, for the love of God. And thus, you know, the writing was on the wall and Mary Williamson has ultimately dropped out of the race. Speaking of people who should drop out of the race, though, Dean Phillips, what is your end game here? Like, I'm legitimately asking, like, it's not the fact that you're running a Kixotic campaign against Joe Biden. It's all but doomed to lose. Like, I understand why he's running. He's looking at the polls. He's terrified by them. He's like, Joe Biden cannot beat, Do his opinion is Joe Biden cannot beat Donald Trump. And so I have to run, if nothing else, to illuminate that fact. But dude, if you're trying to show dissent within the Democratic base, your best performance is 20% against a write-in. A write-in effort that was not even officially endorsed by the Biden campaign itself, mind you. And you lost by over 40 points to that. And that's the most you can show. You didn't even make it on the ballot in Nevada because, whoops, you forgot to file before the deadline, which I think any major presidential candidate should be able to understand what filing deadlines are, but that's just my opinion. I mean, I'm no expert on presidential politics or finances or, you know, how to run a campaign, but I would assume competent advisors would, you know, understand, you know, you want to get on every state's ballot. Like, Dean Phillips can't even do that. Like, what is going on? And again, what is your goal? Like, if you're trying to show this dissent, you're not showing anything. You finished behind Marianne Williamson in South Carolina. Think about that. You finished behind the orb lady. You are a congressman from Minnesota who won a formerly red district in 2018. Yes, you were carried by a blue wave, but still, Is this what your career's come to, Dean? Like, legitimately asking. Like, was this what your career's come to? Is this what you're going to be known for? Instead of being known for, you know, being, you know, having effective constituent services in suburban Minneapolis, you know, suburban Hennepin County. Like, instead of all that, instead of being known as an effective congressman, you're going to be known as someone who once ran a campaign against Joe Biden and visibly failed even though Joe Biden is unpopular and is having enthusiasm problems. You're clearly not giving those who aren't enthused to vote for Joe Biden, Biden a reason to vote for you. Like, there was this one thing that I think illuminated it all. Like, he showed up to an event in South Carolina once. No one was there. Literally no one was there. In New Hampshire, he was speaking to a bunch of people who were holding up write-in Biden signs. You cannot make this up. It's almost tragic. It's almost a sad tale. Like he's a lone soldier charging into enemy lines knowing that he's probably not going to make it out of battle. Like it's, it is almost tragic in a way. But Dean, you did this to yourself. Like, I don't know if you were like, you know, if sort of Bill Ackman's been carrying you in one direction or the other or whatever. Like, there was this weird time where we were like, okay, I'm down with the kids and with Medicare for all, $15 an hour minimum wage. And then then Bill Ackman comes along, donates a million dollars to your campaign. And all of a sudden, it's like Claudine Gay should have been fired, you know, fired and sort of agreeing with them in regards to sort of, you know, not really anti-DEI, but questioning DEI initiatives, which speaking of, that's one thing that's getting targeted by Alabama Republicans probably in this next legislative session, which is another thing we're going to focus on next week. We're actually starting next week on the Alabama legislative session because it is in session right now as of this moment. And, you know, lots of bills have been filed. We'll give you all a lot of the most important ones, including SB1 in regards to voting rights and absentee ballots and whatnot. But that's a conversation for another time. 
So to cap off this whole primary thing, I mean, this has proved, again, that Joe Biden's going to be the Democratic nominee. Donald Trump is going to be the Republican nominee. It's going to be one of the longer general election campaigns in American history, around nine months or so. And I think the sooner we internalize this, the better. But the American public is starting to internalize this, but a lot of people still are, for whatever reason, holding out hope that this is not going to be the case. This is going to be the case. The sooner we accept this, the more informed citizens I think that we will be. Speaking of being informed, like... Is anybody is anybody trying to make sure that the door is not hitting a lot of these Congress people on the way out? Because right now we're on a path of retirement similar to 2018 and 2020. Like I like I get the house is a miserable place. You know, what I've discussed earlier with all this house drama, you know, house not having a speaker for like a couple of weeks and a lot of things having to be voted on because of suspension of the rules, the House GOP caucus being in not exactly the best of order. And I understand that. But, you know, you know, Thursday, Kathy McMorris Rogers, she's the chair of the House of a House committee in regards to energy and commerce. And she resigned. She is not running for re-election. She didn't resign, actually. She's not running for re-election, though. Basically retiring. She's in her 50s. Like, she could have a decade of or two of this. And uh, it, the fact that she's willing to go down is not indicative of a healthy work environment. Patrick McHenry, he is viewed as one of the more you know, workaholic Republicans, more policy-oriented Republicans. He's retiring. Like, he was mentioned as actually this, uh, the Kevin McCarthy's first choice to succeed him as Speaker. He didn't want the job. He's like, nope, I'm gone. I'm gone. I'm out. And there have been a lot, a lot of other retirement suits, some, you know, to run for U.S. Senate. Katie Porter, the Democrat from California, being a really good example of that. And she's probably not going to win because let's be honest it's going to be adam schiff another house member running for senate in california and barbara lee is in the same boat she's a house member of california running for the democratic primary for u.s senate and she's not going to win it's going to be adam schiff so if people you know running for the usual things you know i completely understand that but you have like brian higgins this is the thing that caught me though so brian higgins retiring from the house like resigning to take a job at a local theater company pretty much I yeah the house really must be a toxic environment to work in if people are just leaving for local opportunities Bill Johnson the Republican from Ohio he left to become the president of Youngstown State University there's a lot more in between there I don't know it's weird and it you know, it, you know, for whatever reason, just a lot of people are retiring or resigning or not running for re-election because they just don't want to be in the House anymore. And honestly, with everything that's gone out of there, can't exactly blame them. Now, speaking of people getting shown the door, Ronna Romney McDaniel, the RNC chair, was reported a few days ago as essentially getting forced out by Trump. She plans to step down from the RNC chair position and in her place is probably going to be michael watley he is the head of the north carolina gop he you know has said that falsely that donald trump had somehow won the election he didn't joe biden won in 2020 and that is trump's pick to sort of lead the rnc into 2024 so i have a few thoughts on this first off replacing the national committee chairperson in election year is not exactly great i don't think for the continuity and competency of a party's electoral apparatus, not just for president, but for House, Senate, and everywhere below and in between. Secondly, it's not like the new North Carolina GOP is in good straits financially. It you know it has about two hundred eighty thousand dollars cash on hand, has about seventy thousand dollars in debt. You have just over two hundred thousand dollars of pure liquidity. And considering the North Carolina Democrats have nearly $4 million of that, dollars of that, not great when they're trying to flip the state. 
<laughs> like, it's not great at all. And it's also not great when you realize that the Republican National Committee, if you look at the FEC filings that were filed, I think, last week, that was the weakest true fundraising period the Republicans have had in two, in two and a half decades adjusted for inflation. Like, now I get it. The year before an election year is always pretty weak in terms of donations. But, like, but still, like, the RNC has, I think, like, like I think they raised, like, $8 million or something. And I think they have, like, 6 or so million hand. I think, actually, no, no, no. They have $8 million on hand. And I think they're, like, $2 million in debt. So $6 million in true liquidity. Meanwhile, the Democrats have out-fundraised you. They have a lot more cash on hand. I think the DNC is like three times more cash on hand than that. And, you know, considering the state of these local state parties, Michigan, Colorado, Arizona, Minnesota, and some other state parties are going to like North Carolina. I mean, North Carolina is usually electorally competent, but they're falling on some financial hard times. Those parties are in a lot of dire straits. That is a conversation I'll continue for another time. This has been Pulse of the Nation episode one and season three. I am Brandon Vick, and we will be back next Saturday. Thank you for watching, and we are taking the Pulse of the Nation. Any opinions expressed in this program are those of the host and do not represent the thoughts or opinions of 90.7 WVUA or the University of Alabama. WVUA-FM, Tuscaloosa.